<laughs> because really, uh, I'm sure that you feel that, that uh, we do this every week. We pray for people, but these are our people. You know, it's, it's different from praying for people and praying for our people. The people that are connected to people that we know it makes it so real for me. And it's every week I continue to be surprised, as if I didn't know that everybody's life is challenged. But then I hear something, here's someone who's 57 years old, and I mean, not that this is necessarily the, the, the most touching, but I heard about somebody who's 57 years old and has Alzheimer's disease being cared for by her, her partner, her husband. And I thought about, um, that's very young, uh, my uh, uh, the woman that my father married, when he was widowed at 47, uh, developed Alzheimer's very young, uh, and uh, and he cared for her for a long time, and I and uh, I thought about oh yes that happens also, and this happens also and that happens also and people all the time have. 21-year-old uh, children who are killed in automobile accidents. But here someone knows somebody that that just happened to. And all of a sudden, I think of all the 21-year-olds I know. And everyone that it happened to this time wasn't mine, but it could have been. You know, I don't know a more potent teaching about the frailty of um, the preciousness of this life, uh, the capriciousness of this life, who gets pancreatic cancer, who's in a car accident, and uh, you know, and and who uh, uh, is born with tremendous uh, musical talent, and who this and who that. Not only the the the, the really uh, dramatically painful things in life, but the dramatically wonderful things in life. It's so amazing and mysterious, this life. Why is it happening? How is it happening? Uh, it just blows me away always, those five minutes. I think, what will I say after this? What could anybody say? I, I, I thought again, and some of you have heard me tell this before, that um, the very first time I went to spend some block of time doing uh, mindfulness meditation. Really, my introduction to it was a three-day weekend in San Jose in the spring of 1977. And uh, it was dreadful. Uh, it was really, I was uncomfortable. It was very hot. The circumstances were on, uh, it was somebody's private house. There were 12 or 18 or a lot of us there for the weekend, all sleeping in two rooms on uh, mattresses on the floor, and everyone was 20 years younger and way more hip and didn't mind getting all undressed together in a room with <laughs> 10 other people that you didn't know and sleep on the floor. And it was a really a, a hard weekend for me. I had a terrible headache because nobody told me there wasn't going to be coffee there. <laughs> and there was nothing about it that I liked at all. And uh, two months later, I was on my way on an airplane up to do a two-week retreat, 14 days of a mindfulness retreat. 
And subsequently, you know, looking back, people say I had a terrible time, it was miserable, why did you go and do that? Don't know, except I think that something threw my mind full of displeasure. I hate this, what am I doing here? When I see my husband who pushed me into doing this, he's going to get a piece of my mind about what were you thinking about. <laughs> and I really spent the whole weekend planning these long speeches. <laughs> and here I was. Uh, so I think that there was something about the teaching that spoke to me through that fugue of discontent. And the other thing which I tell people, and this is quite miraculous because who knows, maybe this is the whole reason. There was a plaque on the, on the, on the uh, mantelpiece of this particular living room in this particular house that you get in a, in a state park, one of those redwood burls that are polished. And it said, um, it usually says home sweet home or sisters are friends forever or something like that. And this one said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? I thought to myself, ah, that's what they're teaching here. You know, somehow, that rang true to me. I thought to myself, life is so difficult. We listen to everybody's stuff. I think, what if we didn't have each other? What if we didn't have a place where we could come together and you say, you know what? Life is very difficult. That doesn't mean it's awful. It's difficult. It's also wonderful. It's also sensational. It's also beautiful. It's also the only life we've got, you know? Um, that's a line from an old Beatles song. I don't remember it exactly, but I think the, the whole line is, some say life is very strange, but I say compared to what? You know, you know we don't have. You know, that, um. Just everything is so... I think the other, the, the second part of that, how can we be anything but kind? Sometimes when you hear the 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 uh, uh, the four noble truths of the Buddha, and someone will begin to teach them, and the first one, life is difficult, life is suffering. However, you want to say it, uh, the word dukkha that is translated as suffering or difficult uh, often could, could be more understood as um, undependable always changing. Uh, someone once told me uh, unsatisfactory, because we're translating from the Pali, you know. But unsatisfactory, it's again compared to what, you know. Uh, it's like, it's like a, uh, but given that life is full of challenges, that's actually, I, I like it better that way. Life is challenging, even when it's uh, uh, manifestly wonderful, you know. you. You get, uh, uh, so on, on some mornings, somebody will say, um, my son or my, my, my granddaughter just got uh, 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 her three acceptances to Wellesley, to Princeton, and to Yale. And she has to decide where to go or something. That is a challenge. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, it's not a terrible challenge. You know, that's a, that's a, a challenge. I say, wow, I'd like that challenge. That'd be good. I'd like to have one of those. But everything is challenging <coughs> because you can't know how it's going to be. You can't know if this is the right choice. That we're really brailing our way through this life. And, but we're doing it companioned. And I think that that's the key thing. 
We, we really don't have control of the life. I, uh, I, used to, uh, I used to find it a little funny, and then I found it quite sad uh, when I talk to people who say, I'm the sort of person that likes to be in control of their life all the time, because it seems to me so completely out of our control. I mean, I can control what I eat for lunch today if I make it to lunchtime. But you know that the bigger control is the bigger control is way out of our control. And I think the story of the Buddha, by the way, this is a good place to start. I guess we started, but this is a good place to start and come back to the story of the Buddha, which is told in various ways, has to do with his own uh, uh, awakening to the fact that life is full of challenges, that we inevitably, even if everything goes right, if nothing is ever amiss and no one ever gets hurt or sick or in an untimely way, in any event, we get old, we get feeble, and we die. That's everybody's existential dilemma, and it happens, I think that the Buddha story, by the way, I've been, I have read in the last week twice, Confession, of a Buddhist atheist. So if I read it twice in one week, you have to know that I really loved it. I read it on my Kindle as soon as it came out. And then I, uh, uh, because I really needed to underline every page of the book, I, uh, I had to rush to the bookstore and buy it. Uh, and he'll be here on the 22nd, Monday night, the 22nd of March, talking about it, Stephen Batchelor. I love this book. Uh, and he makes a point of saying, uh, among other things, that uh, the life of the Buddha, uh, one of the points that he's making, it's not the point of the book, but the life of the Buddha as we hear it, uh, usually that he was a protected prince and that magically he didn't know about old age, sickness, and death, and that in a certain time in his life he went out from his magical protected palace and saw those sights that that's probably mythical, or most likely mythical. Um, that there is really quite a bit known about the life of uh, Gautama, who became known as the Buddha, the person who woke up. And there is a, a, a really substantial body of uh, information about who his friends were, and uh, what alliances he had, and a lot of the teachings of um, uh, a lot of the, the, the sermons of the Buddha begin in the Jetta Grove. Uh, thus I have heard, in the Jetta Grove one time, the Buddha said, and he did stay with his group of uh, monks and nuns for a big piece of his uh, uh, 45 years of teaching in a certain <laughs> grove that was uh, given to him by a certain king with whom he had a friendship and an alliance. And so there's a lot known about uh, his interchanges with that king and things that happened and, uh, and rivalries with his cousins and much about his life that's interesting to know. Not, uh, not particular, that's not what was so enlightening or engrossing about the book. There's also a lot in the book about um, uh, the different uh, strains of Buddhism, in uh, Buddhism as it comes through Tibet, Buddhism as it came through China, Buddhism as it came through Japan, the different 
canons of what the Buddha taught. And it's, again, very interesting, and we've known this before, that the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Uh, I mean, he was a, 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 a person who elected to uh, become a monk, and um, as was not unusual in that part of the world at that time, and who felt that he had come upon, through his own meditation, the cause and the end of suffering, and taught it for 35 years, 45 years, from 35 until about 80. Uh, and uh, what Stephen Batchelor has done is, try, is uh, uh, through, he's, he's really a scholar, through studying the original suttas and studying uh, cross texts, has attempted to separate out what actually the doctrine that the Buddha taught was, and what we, and those things that have come down as Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Japanese Zen Buddhism, have been added because of the other cultures that they lived in. What's actually what is what he taught, and what's either mythological or cultural or pasted on from other cultures. And it's fascinating to read because a lot of the things that, that you've heard and that I've heard as stories may be stories, but not true. But it ends up, it, 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 the, the, the point of the book is not that what the Buddha taught wasn't important. It's the opposite of that, that what the Buddha taught is vitally important, but that what he taught is not all the stories and, and, and metaphysics that grow up in each of those traditions of Buddhism. But what he taught was this particular way of seeing the world and working in the world in one's life in such a way as to uh, create a life where the mind is not caught in suffering and uh, where one feels uh, contentedly and passionately engaged in the world in uh, a meaningful way. I'll read you the last the last paragraph of the book. Because he's also going to talk about uh, the whole of what he says. This is another way of saying that whole thing. So, all these disparate Buddhisms, Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, all these Buddhisms, they're different. But what every Buddhist will agree on is the Four Noble Truths, and the, including the Eightfold Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth. And he presents them as not being axioms, these are what's true, but being things to be practiced. His, uh, his view is that what we need to be doing is practicing continually noticing how life is challenging and all of the possible ways in which the mind can get caught or not caught in suffering. That it's practicing the, uh, the truth of suffering, pra not, not to make yourself suffer, Practicing seeing that truth. Practicing seeing the second truth, which is that the, the pain in the mind that uh, arises when there's an imperative in the mind that things be different from how they are. That's the second noble truth. That, the, that suffering is not, there's a lot of suffering in the world, there's a, a wars and famines, etc., which he also talks about in responding to them. But he said the extra suffering that's the imperative in the mind 
that it shouldn't be that way. It is that way, whatever it is, that we can change it. There's another one more way to say that is um, all of the, 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 the situations that people mentioned in their prayers, uh, someone is suddenly diagnosed with this or that or the other thing. There is the pain of that realization. I have pancreas cancer, I have this, I have that. And then there's the pain of outrage in the mind. Why should I have this? Why me? I'm too young. This shouldn't happen to me. That, uh, that by the way, everybody has when they, I mean, it's a normal response. But a possible further uh, iteration of that is, I've got this, everybody's got something. So that just doesn't leave you happy about being sick, but it takes out of the mind the outrage about it so that we're sick and we try the best we can to get better, or we lose something and we try the best we can to re-put ourselves together and go on. It does not mean we don't respond eagerly and, and wholeheartedly in our life to, uh, to try to ameliorate circumstances. It's a, a kind of response to the mind that says, I can't be happy unless things aren't the way they are. But they are the way they are. What can I do now? The third noble truth is the truth of the possibility that the mind could stop doing that. That's really why I wanted for us to practice as we sat this morning, have the name of what we were doing, practicing contentment. Doesn't mean we're pleased. You have to be pleased to be content. I thought to myself, as we were sitting, I thought I forgot an instruction. I should have said, did anybody notice I forgot an instruction? <laughs> I forgot an instruction. Yeah, what instruction did I forget? I'll give you a hint. It's Thich Nhat Hanh's instruction. Smile. That Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you sit, smile a little bit. Just a little bit, you know, just a little bit. And people in the beginning used to say to him, why should I smile? You know, what if I'm not happy? Why should I smile if I'm not happy? So all the more reason. This is that the smile is not a statement, I'm happy. It's actually a, uh, an intentional relaxing of the face muscles in the awareness that you're unhappy and in the remembrance and the recollection and the conviction that you could be happy, not in the sense of pleased, but uh, contented. I thought about, again, contented doesn't mean not doing in the world. So now I'm going to read you from Stephen before, be, without a moment. We'll come back to that because he makes this case so beautifully. This is the last paragraph of this book. I no longer think of Buddhist practice solely in terms of gaining proficiency in meditation and acquiring, quotes, spiritual attainments. The challenge of Gautama's Eightfold Path is, as I understand it, to live in this world that allows every aspect of one's existence to flourish, seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working, etc. Each area of life calls for a specific way of practicing the Dhamma. Meditation and mindfulness alone are not enough. Given the task of responding to the suffering that confronts me each time I open a newspaper, I find it immoral to relegate the demands of this life 
to the, quotes, higher task of preparing oneself for a post-mortem existence or non-existence. I think of myself as a secular Buddhist who is concerned entirely with the demands of this age, no matter how inadequate and insignificant my responses to these demands might be, and if in the end there does turn out to be a heaven or nirvana or somewhere else, I can see no better way to prepare for it. Is that good? I think it's great. I really, really will leave this here out too. To live in the world engaged, to, to, uh, to work, to read, to act. To live with a mind that's satisfied. I did the best, I'm doing the best. I'm not fighting with it. I think a mind without contention, a mind without imperative, a mind that, there's a, there's a gospel song, uh, search the world over, there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. I think that practicing that second noble truth is noticing how easily the mind falls into dissatisfaction. We have this, I want more. This happened, I need more. Just to live, he said, he said, these are not axioms to learn, they're practices to live. If I keep saying, I don't have more, I have this, okay, I'm all right. Practicing the third noble truth of contentment, the stopping in that moment of wanting otherwise. Do you ever have moments in your life where you didn't want otherwise? think about it. When you say, my cup runneth over. I don't need anything. Yeah? You want to say what one of them was? What? I took this card from India where I spent 10 days in Ramana's ashram and the beds were like boards and my food was too stinky. The dog felt all night and I was never so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a great that's a, that's a great um, I'd love to follow that up sometime and have you tell a little bit more about going to Ramana's ashram. Did you meditate all day? Or? Um, have you been there? No. Well, he did. I know. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are plunges and things that go on all day, and then there are places to go and sit, but there's nothing terribly structured. Okay. But while I was there, I met a, a teacher named Mu Muji. His name is Jamaican. There were 400 people every day at this Sunday. That, that drew me, and he was uh, seeing the Punja and Ramana. Yeah. I don't know where. Yeah, connected with. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I came home to my soft bed and quiet room, and I couldn't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think that's a tremendous thing about it. it has nothing to do with the stuff. It has to do with the state of the mind. I think. I think actually that's uh, that. Uh, that's another way of saying what, what the point of this book is. There isn't anything on the outside. I mean, things happen, and they certainly startle us, but it's our own mind that meets it that makes a difference. Really, I, one of the things that I had in mind uh, was uh, a, a, a small event that happened to me last week, and I thought about it, and I thought, oh, I think when I come back to Spirit Rock, I'll tell the story, because I particularly wanted to make the case 
as uh, in connection with Stephen saying, these are excellent rules. These are excellent frameworks for practicing in one's life. And if you want to be, say that you're a Buddhist, and maybe you want to, you want to do that, but you don't have to be a, a Buddhist. There isn't anything Buddhistic about uh, orienting yourself around those truths, being able to say things are what they are. I'll change what I can. I'll celebrate when there's something to celebrate. I'll deal with it when there's, I have to deal with something. And in the meantime, I'll connect with other people so that I get, I, 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 I'll be uh, accompanied and companioned in this life. I was thinking to myself this morning, maybe I do sound like I ever did 20 or 30 years ago, but I, I, think, more, I, I think I thought then more about uh, the internal process of liberating my mind I think I think more now, not about not doing, I do think about doing that, but I think so much about feeling companioned in this life. More and more, I think, uh, uh, our coming together on Wednesdays as we do, whether or not we know each other personally. So here's a group of 100 or so people, all of whom are interested in orienting their minds towards peace. So already, like everybody in the room, we don't have to know anything else about them. Because everybody who has come here has self-selected. And, and, th and the event that happened to me last week that I thought, you really don't have to be a Buddhist or in anything, except you have to be wise. I thought I'd call this talk, by the way, Wis Wisdom is Wisdom, is I was having my hair cut. And um, I, uh, I, my, my hair cutter uh, has her own place in her house. So there aren't other chairs around. There's just her and whoever she's working on, and the next person who's arriving for their appointment. So she's finishing up cutting my hair, and a woman comes in, next person, with a brown paper bag. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and she whips out a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and she said, OK, Paula, I brought this champagne for you and, I, you and me. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Paula said, oh, then we're celebrating. Paula has apparently known that this woman was, had an appointment just prior to her haircut to get the results of her biopsy. And uh, she, Paula said, so-and-so, this is Sylvia. Hello, Sylvia, stay and have champagne. <laughs> so, okay, one o'clock in the afternoon, the three of us are toasting this woman's health and in the basement of Paula's house, in the middle of haircuts. And uh, uh, so I, you know, I asked her about what did you have, and she said, da, 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 and the lymph nodes, and they took them out, and they did this and that, and radiation. But she said, I'm free of this minute. I don't have cancer. I said, you know, you really, uh, I said, wow, that was something. She said, listen, I've been through this twice before. When you get better, you get better, and then you celebrate. I thought, this woman has got it right, you know? And, I, and you know, not to take away that everybody has their own style, she said, that's finished with. Now she's talking with Paula about, let's put streaks here and there and the other place. That's <laughs> OK, goodbye. But I thought, you know, I thought, this is it. You know, we go through this life. We get this, we get that. We get lumps and bumps and this and that and the other. You deal with it, and you continue. And I thought to myself, I wonder if this woman ever heard of the Buddha. Or, you know, but, but I think wisdom is pre-Buddha, post-Buddha. Wisdom is wisdom. You get what you get. You make the best of it. You, you address it, certainly. 
And you finish with it when you finish, if you can. I was really happy for her. I also thought about that moment, uh, just as I did when we were saying our intentions, uh, that uh, the other thing that I learn every week when we sit together and say my, you know, my father was this and my uncle and this and that and the other, is uh, that there's a way in which, um, without being macabre about it, we're, we're living in a minefield, all of us, you know, that um, it's funny, on the way over this morning, uh, I was listening to uh, KDFC, and Hoyt Smith played Dance Macabre, if you know it. It's a, he said, this means the dance of death. He said, but actually it's quite cheerful. And it is quite a cheerful piece of music. But in, uh, in the middle of this life, we are all around us. The, the reminders, like the, in the Buddha story, he goes out and he has this uh, transformative experience of realizing that there's old age, sickness, and death. But in our lives, if we paid it all attention from the beginning, we don't have to go out and have that realization. It's all around us, all the time. If we're looking that this day happened and we're still here, it's magic that all the people that you care about when you come together this year for the 4th of July or somebody's graduation or, or Easter dinner or a Passover Seder, you come together and you look, if all your people are still all there, it's a miracle. It means that nothing happened to them in this year, and it could have been otherwise. And I, and I, and I really am thinking that what's changed in me in all these years is uh, not, not that I, I, I find that less awesome, or uh, if I'm in a certain way less, <gasps> about it, because it could be otherwise, but more of a mandate about not using any of my time here, not mortgaging any of my mind to bitterness, that in any moment I could be <laughs> celebrating, not mortgaging any of my mind to bitterness, who I don't like, who I'm mad at, who said something bad about me. I think there's a certain amount of real estate terrain in, in your mind. I want to like mortgage a few properties there's not enough room in there. I'd rather, I'd rather, uh, I know who I don't care for so much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't figure I'm going to have a chance, you know, I'd start liking people that I don't care for. But I don't have to have any charge of a negative variety in my mind. I think that that's one of the central teachings of the Buddha. I think it's the central teaching of every every uh, enduring spiritual path that I know of. If you think about Judaism or Christianity, they all have as their central tenet, love one another as I have loved you. Um, do not hate your neighbor and your, your brother in your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of those are the same message about 
cultivating the kind of mind that doesn't hang on to animosities and recriminations. One of the things that I did in New York was uh, I went to uh, uh, I went to a book celebration of a friend of mine. The name of the book is Devotion, and uh, it's written by uh, Danny Shapiro, uh, Danny with an I, D-A-N-I Shapiro. Danny Shapiro is a mid forties uh, woman writer. Um, She's written seven novels, so she's principally a novelist. And uh, this book is about the fact that uh, uh, she uh, married in her mid-30s and has a son who's now uh, 10 years old. When he was uh, a few months old, he began to exhibit seizure-like activity. She looked down at him one day, and he was clearly having some sort of a seizure. And they rushed to a neurologist, and they found that seven in a million babies are born with uh, some anomalous wiring that causes them, in their, while their brains are still young, to have seizures. If they are not treated, they can die. They often end up with severe kinds of brain injuries, or blind, or deaf. Or, uh, they noticed this immediately. They went to a neurologist. This, part, this actually isn't even part of the whole story, but when you think about it, uh, everything is a story. They went to, it was diagnosed by a neurologist in New York City who said this is very rare. The important thing is to keep the child from having the seizures until they are a, a year old or so, and then the, their brains sort of grow up and they don't do this anymore. And there is a medicine that does seem to work for it, but you can't get it in the United States. The FDA hasn't approved it. You can only buy it from Mexico or from Canada. And uh, this particular neurologist gave them immediately the phone number of some people in New York who had a child who, with this, who were importing the medicine. And uh, she said, you know, imagine I've got this bundle of five-month-old child and we're driving, they call, they're driving up to the apartment building where these people live. Uh, she said, I felt like we were doing like a, a drug heist or something. And, that's such a and here I am terrified for my child, and we have to go get an illegally imported drug from some people who are going to share their supply with us until we can get our own. So they get the drug. They give the child the drug many times a day at certain intervals through the first year, and he's fine. He's 10 years old, and he's just fine. So it's got a lot of stories in there, like why does that have to happen? But anyway, he's fine. But she wrote the book because at some point he began, I think Danny's father died, and then at some point Danny's mother died. So Jacob began asking questions about uh, what happens when you die and um, what's after this life or... All those kinds of existential questions. And she said, I realized that I didn't have any answers for him. She herself had grown up in an orthodox but suspicious, superstitiously orthodox Jewish home. Where people were very strictly following letters of the law, but not really talking about existential 
questions. I think a lot of people grew up in houses that very uh, meticulously followed some orthodoxy, but didn't really talk about how do you deal with this in life. So uh, the book is about her own spiritual quest. Uh, and it ends up by saying that uh, she, didn't, uh, she didn't find an answer, because there isn't an answer, but there's a way of living the question, which is really what we've been saying all along. We live in this unknowing. We live in this mystery. And the idea is not to know the answer, because even if someone shouted the answer out from the sky, it's about heaven, it's not about heaven, it's about this, it's about that, that still would not change how we are in this life and the fact that we're pained when we lose things and we celebrate when things go all It doesn't make any difference in our life what's going to be after this. What are we going to do now? So what she discovered was practices that she could do. And one of the practices that she got to do is uh, she learned that she became a yoga practitioner, a Hatha yoga practitioner. And um, also because she's a Jew and she had a, a very strong upbringing in that as a child, she began to go to weekly um, Bible study classes with a, a particular um, New York Bible teacher. Um, and she began to study mindfulness meditation and practice it, mostly metta, I think, because she met me. Uh, so I am, by the way, in that book in a kind of a prominent way, uh, which was a very big surprise to me, you know. Uh, nobody ever wrote me into their book as a character before. <laughs> and uh, the event in New York was uh, an event celebrating her book, so there were five people on stage. There was Danny and her book and the moderator of this event and her three spiritual teachers. Uh, and it was a very fun evening. It was a, uh, nobody gave a speech. It was just conversation. And the moderator moderated. That's actually why I wasn't here last week. I was doing that in New York. But uh, lots of people kept asking questions about, are you a... Uh, can you really be a Jew? Are you a Jew? Are you a Buddhist also? Are, uh, uh, how about uh, yoga? That's a Hindu path. And how about the fact that the yoga teacher, who's my friend uh, Steve Cope, who was sitting next to me, one of, the, one of her teachers, uh, mentioned that he had dropped uh, just, uh, he'd come to that uh, evening uh, forum having gone to. Uh, the evening service at the Presbyterian Church on uh, Fifth Avenue because he passed there and he's he's a Christian and he likes to go to church and so we we confounded everybody you know with, <laughs> with you know everybody's everybody's religion the only one who had more or less straight credentials was the rabbi who was the Bible teacher so everybody else had confusing credentials confusing to other people. But at one point, I said, look, I think it's not the name of what you call yourself. It's the point of what you're doing. And everybody said, oh. And, but, <clears throat> and I felt at that point maybe I'd been a little strong, like, you know. But really, it's not the name of what you call yourself. It's the point of what you're doing. And I think that the point of every great uh, enduring religious tradition 
is to cultivate a mind of peace and a goodwill heart. And that's not accidental, you know. It's, not, it's because that's what human beings want to do. Because I, I think it's our birthright, it's a possibility, a lot of people do that. And I think it's the antidote to the suffering. Most of us suffer because we get confused. We're caught up in the trance of our lives. Um, we, have, we maybe don't learn enough ways to reorient the attention from this to that. Pasquale asked that question earlier this morning. He said that we were talking in the ethics part in our precepts <laughs> class about uh, how complicated it is sometimes when you're in a discussion with people and you know, just in, in, in some place where you're together with other people, and they start to really talk um, negatively about somebody. And there's this kind of an unpleasantness, you know, that it happens frequently when you're in a group and somebody mentions so-and-so, often a politician, that everybody can jump in and say bad things about her. It's kind of a, like a group huddle, you know, like <laughs> we all agree so-and-so is awful. And, you know, that uh, maybe, and Pascual was pointing out that that's not a pleasant activity for him, that, that uh, fueling up, look how awful someone is, and how awkward it is to uh, you know, leave the conversation and say, I don't want to talk about that, or let's talk about something else. But I'm thinking about what if we, um, but what if it wasn't awkward? What if we had a culture that really, uh, or, or a school system, or um, a society that didn't so much um, uh, encourage that kind of interaction and encouraged instead sweetness or kindness or thinking of the goodness of people. Of course, the other thing sells more airtime. You know, it's more exciting to be provocative and fight. I almost mentioned this morning when we were saying our thoughts for so-and-so or so-and-so, um, Jaime Escalante. Do you remember Jaime Escalante? Jaime Escalante was the person who uh, was about the character. He's not a character, he's a real person, and he's currently dying. And uh, in the 1980s and through the early 1990s, he was a school teacher in a Latino barrio in Los Angeles. And the movie Stand and Deliver was patterned on his life. And he took children who were, um, came from difficult circumstances and were often language, uh, language handicapped. And he taught them <coughs> mathematics because he thought mathematics, he said, you don't have to be able to talk a language to do mathematics. And he taught high school students trigonometry and calculus and, got the, and, and, and inspired them about their own capability by, by insisting that they could learn to do calculus. They, uh, uh, and it inspired that whole movie. It changed the culture of the school. It made a significant difference in the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, I, I know that, that, that now he's dying because I was listening to NPR last night. And uh, uh, numbers of his previous students have come together to do benefits to raise money from him because his family is in a difficult financial state. 
and they interviewed all these people, uh, many people, and I was listening to the interviews, and I was driving my car, and I was crying, because here were people saying, uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm not remembering exactly the name, but they could have been saying, my name is Laura Alvarez, but clearly Latino names, and uh, uh, Jaime Escalante taught me, and I went to college, and, my, my, and I went to this or that, and then I went to law school, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing that. And people talking, all of them all choked about the goodness of this person and having someone have faith in them. And I was thinking about, I, I was thinking about how ennobled I felt listening to that. And I guess I thought of it now because I thought about how about if the airwaves were filled of stories about people doing good things? Because all over the world, uh, I got an email this morning from a friend of mine who I was, uh, I was supposed to meet yesterday. She wasn't there. And I sent her an email and said, you weren't there. She said, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to tell you. I was away that we meet weekly. She said, I was away. I took, a, I took my class of, uh, of students to, uh, uh, to Mexico. We're in Tijuana. We're building a house tomorrow. And, uh, you know, and then we're having a fiesta the next day. I think to myself, there are people building houses in Tijuana and there are people doing all kinds of good things all over the place. And it, what about if we pass the word around about that? What about if we change the culture to that? Anyway, that was a big soapbox that I didn't mean to get on. <laughs> Maybe I did mean to get on it. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to go back and read you that last chapter, that last paragraph from um, Stephen Batchelor. Because there have been more and more, um, uh, uh, let me start the sentence again so I do it right. I am having uh, uh, these days a bigger appreciation, a wider appreciation of the first noble truth than I think I had 10 or 20, 30 years ago when I started. The emphasis in my learning and the emphasis in reading traditional Buddhist texts is on suffering really being an internal event. Really, and I said to myself earlier today, an internal event of the one's own mind being unable to accept the truth of the situation. The imperative in one's mind that things be different. And I think that, I, you know, I believe that as well. I still believe that, that changing the mind is not like I arm wrestle the mind to the ground. It, that, that change of mind depends on wisdom. It depends when things can't be different, knowing that they can't be different. Um, my friend Martha, who many of you know, because she was here uh, all the time until she took ill and then died from her pancreas cancer, said, um, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about this cancer, Sylvia. And I said, uh, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm not open to it happening. I said, well, give me a break. You know, you've got, you know, got pancreas cancer. You know? She said, well, I said, you're just not supposed to fight with it. She said, well, truth to tell, I, fi I think I'm fighting with it. I said, well, you're just not supposed to give yourself a hard time for fighting with it. <laughs> 
said, truth to tell, I'm giving myself a hard time <laughs> for, for fighting with it. But then she thought about it for a while, and she said, you know, she said, this is really the truth. When I'm thinking to myself, why me, why me? I'm only 62 years old, why me? She said, I really suffer a lot. And she said, I keep on suffering until I think, why not me? Other people have this. Other people have other things. She said, you know, I'm not any more pleased about dying. You know, I'm not happy about dying at all. Not any more pleased about having the cancer. I hate it, I wish I didn't have it. But I don't suffer so much when I think, why not me? That's the kind of when the imperative of the mind, when you can't change how things are. And I think that traditionally, at least in this country, not I don't speak for it in all, in all cultures, because it's different in all cultures. In this country, with converts to Buddhism from Western religions in the last 30 years, the emphasis has been on internal suffering, the suffering that I create with the habits of my mind. And it has not, as a, as a movement, been as involved as perhaps Christianity has been, and to some degree, Christianity a lot, to some degree Judaism, in making the world a different place. Been more, uh, more of an emphasis on changing one's own mind. And uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a really uh, important thinker in the Buddhist world these days, has been talking about really recognizing suffering, not only as the suffering of the habits in one's own mind, but the suffering in the world that that's happening because of uh, injustices, because there isn't peace in the world, because enough people haven't spoken up, because there isn't a better sharing of resources. It's really calling for people to do something in the world more as part of their practice, not to make the whole of spiritual practice uh, internal to me. I think there's a way of seeing that as really understanding that we don't do this apart from anybody. If I am really going to think of myself as being companioned in this life by everybody else who's doing this with me, then I really have to think of making myself a companion to everybody else in this life in any way that I can. You know how there are support groups for this or that? You get a diagnosis of something. And uh, it's always a little bit, I have a friend now who's just had a diagnosis of something. And she said, the last thing I want to do is a support group of people who've got what I've got. I don't want to, you know, I want to be with regular people. I don't want to be labeled as a person with that. On the other hand, there are people who find very tremendous helpful to be in a support group. I am actually thinking these days of Sangha as, a, as an ongoing support group. You know, that, that when we come here with each other and we say, this is what's on my mind, and other people say, this is what's on my mind, this is what's on my mind, we are witnessing to each other the truth that we all got up this morning. Everybody here, how many people mentioned somebody this morning out loud? How many people didn't mention this morning? How many people could have mentioned if they had to, if, it, if you couldn't leave without mentioning? <laughs> Everybody's got stuff. Everybody's got stuff. And everybody got up this morning and put on their shoes and socks and came out. 
Human beings are incredibly courageous. We keep on doing this, no matter what. You see about climate is getting, the planet's getting hotter, this is happening, that's happening. Our, our grandchildren are gonna have to live in it. And nevertheless, we keep on doing as if we can make a difference. Yes. And there are, as you mentioned, these different things that we can do to feel more at ease with ourselves. And um, Donald has mentioned to uh, experience what it's like to sit and meditate with a slight smile on your face. And that's that's something that I've been sitting with a lot. And when I had that horrible First of all, that's terrific news, Robin. Second of all, I'm very glad that you bring it up at this point because, in fact, I, I think I, I, I assume that implicit in what I was saying is the fourth noble truth is the practice path, and the practice path is orienting your mind in all ways towards a wiser choice. With, a, If you remember the Eightfold Path, is wise understanding, wise intention, wise uh, speech, wise action, wise livelihood, uh, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And think about each of those. If we understand from our being together that this is a very complicated life and uh, subject to, not subject to change, changing all the time, that uh, changing all the time, that 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 what uh, what 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 we do have free will about is what we choose to bring our attention to, and that right intention, the wise intention, the second of the eightfold path, is intending the mind to uh, non greed, non hatred, non delusion. Another way of saying it, to generosity, to friendliness, and to clarity. And in any moment, you can say, wait a minute, there's some big thing boils up in your mind, you say, wait a minute, do I want to do this or do I want to do that? that? Like smiling. I can be terrified now or I can say, you know, I can't know yet, so right now I'll sit and I'll take some breaths. I can follow this, uh, this path of my mind 
that's just gotten irate about something, or I can think about something else. I can, uh, uh, one more uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, technique, which um, I just heard a couple of weeks ago, and it just gives me so much pleasure, besides the technique of smiling, is he said when the mind gets into some sort of a, when his mind gets into some sort of a trouble, it's about to broil itself up, he could say to himself, if, if this is true, he could say to himself, no toothache. And that makes him happy. You know? I have been thinking about that so much recently. No toothache. You know? At any point where I'm about to get mad at somebody, or I'm annoyed at the traffic, or I'm worried about something, I say to myself, no toothache. What's more, no earache. You know, that, I mean, there's a lot of things. You know, this is working. At the, you know, that it's orienting the mind instead of complaining to celebrating. You could say maybe that's the whole thing. Instead of complaining, celebrating. I, I frequently I tell people about the woman. I, I, I'm not quite sure. I think I know which. Uh, I think it was Tony Packer who said uh, somebody, uh, somebody who was a, a woman Buddhist teacher of some renown who, when dying, said, thank you very much. I have no complaints. I think to myself, that would be a great way to go out. I, not only it would be a great way to die, it would be a great way to live. And I, I really think about that a lot. No toothache, no earache. It's again spring. The flowering quince that's supposed to flower in February, March is in fact flowering. It's a miracle that it knows how to do that. Even it's a cold year, it knows how to do that. That the second of those noble truths is orienting the mind in the direction of uh, uh, in the direction of satisfied, in the direction of not struggling, and, this, and, and with the virtue practices of right action, right speech, right livelihood, figure, figuring out a way to live that don't complicate it. Like Pasquale was saying, you know, figure out some way to orient the discussion in another way without putting people down, which is a whole story, and we can talk about that sometime for a whole day, but how to, how to not put people down but not go that way. Uh, it's a, it's, I just thought of three stories, but they will be too long, so we go on. And I, want, and I want to do the last three because I think the last three are particularly important for us. Because of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, they're usually taught as concentration being foremost important. That concentration is the steadiness of mind. I think it's tremendously important. I think it's tremendously important to know that concentration is, is closest to composure. Not necessarily, but steadiness. You know, I used to think, uh, I used to have a... Um, uh, a mental image when I first started my meditation practice when people would talk about developing a, a mind that was so concentrated it could cut through and see the truth of things and I had a mental image because I was born in 1936 and I grew up reading Superman comics <laughs> remember that Superman would concentrate so much that he could bore a hole in the side of a battleship so I used to sit and meditate like that, thinking that I was really boring a hole in the side of a battleship. 
But I was really, I had clenched teeth, and I, it wasn't like a relaxed way of meditating. And I think to myself now, what I'm more interested is not could I make a hole in the battleship, but can I put more ballast in the, in the bottom of the ship so that it sails a little more steadily. So, because things happen, there are waves, things happen, and we're supposed to respond to the waves. Um, I, I was very much affected in my early practice by stories of uh, tremendous mystics who would hear some dreadful news and they'd say, oh, is that so? Hmm. Is that so? Hmm. And I thought that I was supposed to develop a mind that said, is that so? And I actually, I, I, I hope it's not because I haven't. Uh, and I, I wouldn't like to be publicly admitting to failure. But I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about being able to say, fantastic, oh, oh dear, what should we do? I, I really want to be able to do both of those. But I want to be able to do both of those and continue on. I don't want the ship to fall over one way or the other. That I think that concentration is from cultivating um, contentment, cultivating composure, which doesn't mean that you go around your life, <laughs> I mean, I think, I. I I hope it doesn't mean that because uh, I can't do that and I don't want to do that. So, uh, But back to the mindfulness, which is really the ability to see clearly what's happening right now and make a good decision based on that, which is really central to Stephen's book. And the last, which I saved for the last because I think it's the most important, is wise effort. And uh, the Buddha was very clear about a wise effort. He said it's four things. I actually think it's one thing, you know, back again. To maybe they just parse it out. He said it's noticing in the mind if there are wholesome states in it, like peace and love and kindness and generosity and tolerance and forbearing and patience. And noticing if those are in the mind. And if they're in the mind, Cultivating them, keeping them, strengthening them. Noticing if they're absent from the mind and then trying to cultivate them into the mind. Noticing uh, in the mind if there are unskillful, unwholesome states like greed or anger or bitterness or impatience or what's another... Um, painful state, um, addiction, jealousy, envy, mm. noticing if they're there and trying to have strategies to put them out of the mind. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you something funny in a minute. I want to tell you the fourth. The fourth is noticing if they're not there and keeping them out. So I actually think it's one thing making sure your mind is filled with wholesome stuff, trying to cultivate a mind that's filled with wholesome thoughts and feelings. Uh, the reason that I just laughed is that often, I'm sorry I don't have a book of the, but is, uh, the, of the, the middle discourses. This is a particular discourse in which the Buddha talks about techniques for uh, clearing the mind of unwholesome uh, thoughts. Uh, particularly angry thoughts and bitter thoughts. There's a five or six stratagems for doing that. And uh, uh, 
you know, we always present uh, Buddhism as a very gentle kind of practice. Buddha is a gentle, Buddha was a gentle person, gentle instructions. But I think that that's actually a latter-day addition because the last of all the stratagems for clearing the mind of uh, anger says if everything else fails, then the meditator should clench his teeth or her teeth together and put their tongue on a roof of their mouth, <laughs> pressing their tongue on the roof of their mouth with all their strength, push those thoughts out of their <laughs> mind. <laughs> and so it, it, it's, it's, uh, James reads it often on retreat. And people laugh a lot because we always are giving these instructions about be with what's happening, open to the truth. Forget it. He said, that's there. Get rid of it. It's not good for you. Yeah, you have open to what you can't change. Open to the feelings in you that you can't change. Even open to the anger. Feel it. But not to glorify. Feel the anger. Know it's there. Acknowledge it. And say, okay, this feels really not good. What can I do now? Out of compassion for myself so that this isn't here. It's not a denial. So there's a four-word or five-word from, from, from Stephen. It says, this is the Four Noble Truths. He does it in five words. Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is embrace. The second is let go. The third is stop. And the fourth is act. He says that's the whole of the Dharma. This template, he says, can be applied to every situation in life. Rather than shying away from or ignoring what's happening, embrace it with mindful attention. Rather than craving to seize it or get rid of it, relax one's grip. Rather than getting caught up in a cascade of reactivity, stop and stay calm. Rather than repeat what you have said and done a thousand times before, act in an empathic and imaginative way. How about that for the whole of the Dharma in one paragraph? Do you like that? <laughs> that little paragraph? This template, the four, embrace, let go, stop, act. This template can be applied to every situation in life Rather than shying away from or ignoring what's happening, embrace it with mindful attention rather than craving to seize it or to get rid of it. Relax one's grip rather than getting caught up in a cascade of reactivity. Stop and stay calm. Rather than repeat what you have said and done a thousand times before, act in an empathic and imaginative way. I think that's great. So one more thing before we go, I, I, I'm, um, this was the piece of uh, uh, announcement that I would have made in the middle, but I didn't feel like stopping. So by the way, you can... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.